Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Zan Barksdale. Zan runs his own website called Catching101.com. He's a former Division I college baseball coach at several schools. He has his own conference. It's called Catcher's Con. It's, he does it every single year in Nashville, usually in the month of December, where all, all these catch great catching minds come together and collaborate, and it's a, it's a really cool experience from what I've heard from other people outside of Zan as well. And he's someone who, in this episode, breaks down the catching position. So if you're a catcher, if you're a coach or a parent of a catcher, this is going to be a great episode for you. So make sure you stay around and tune in because we're going over different drills. We're talking about how to approach pitchers, what, when to call certain pitches. Fantastic insight from a catching guru, if you will, um, in Zan. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is Zan Barksdale. All right, we now welcome on Zan Barksdale. Uh, Zan, thanks for coming on today, man. Glad to have me, man. I know we talked about this a while ago, but glad to finally uh, get caught up with you. Yeah, for sure. And I've been uh, right right before we started recording. Now I was, um, you know, just talking to you about how I was on your YouTube channel, and I've kind of just been googling you. And it seems like you you're a man of many talents. I mean, and and, and I say that as a compliment. I mean, you do a lot of things really well. I mean, I was even just talking about your YouTube channel. It's awesome. Um, even that recruiting video that you recently put out about individualizing um, videos to send to college coaches. Great idea. I actually just sent that to one of the um, high school kids I know. Um, but you also, you know, really good catching coach. I think you have your own clothing company too. I mean, you, you just, how, how do you like, schedule all this stuff? I mean, how do you? Like... <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I, I think if I did try to schedule, it wouldn't work out. But uh, I definitely appreciate you saying that. And I think part of it comes from, um there, there's a meme i saw a long time ago where it's like how my my brain works is off or on you know it's a light switch and uh when i get on something it's it's almost obsessive about it so uh when i kind of start something new i go 100 percent as fast as i can um and then you know then i try to move on to the next thing and luckily for me i like to i like to learn i like to read and i like to watch videos and take courses and try to learn so um i try to learn things that are helpful and some of them translate into the the video stuff you talk about but um, it, it's kind of just, I guess, partly being compulsive about certain things. Now, what would you say your main, do you have like a, something like your main gig is, or is it just everything? It's, you know, I like to think of it as I don't have one really big job. I have about 20 small jobs. Um, but at the end of the day, yes, everything is built around, uh, for the most part, I have a couple different things. Catching 101 is the website where I offer, you know, catching instruction and DVDs and books and videos and that sort of things. I also have a catching conference um, in, the, in the winter in December, which is called CatcherCon. Um, so that's, that takes up a lot of time and is a very fun weekend in the winter. Um, and then I have a, 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 a number of other websites around baseball. One seam track, one is never miss a sign. Uh, like you said, I do have, I have dipped my toes in the water doing some other things, but uh, but the bulk of it's based around catching, and then the other stuff is just kind of side projects that have turned into a little bit more over time. Well, I'm excited to learn about catching. I mean, that's just a position I've never played um, ever, 
And I think it's it's so important. I mean, it is just – and I've always said this too. I'd rather have a catcher who really can't honestly hit that good. But, he, man, he, he can control the game. He can block. He can call pitches. He can do everything really well versus a guy who rakes but is just kind of iffy behind the plate. Um, have you always been uh, obsessed with the catching just the position? Yeah, the defense has always been really interesting to me. And, you know, what you just said, I think, is is super important, just to be honest. And it feels like for a long time, I mean, even going back from from when I was a kid and growing up and playing baseball in youth leagues, everybody said they wanted a defensive first catcher. You know, we need a catcher who, like you said, can catch and can throw and command a game and, and call pitches and do this and that. Um, but you saw a disconnect between what people said and what they actually went and recruited and what they looked for simply because it was harder to find and harder to evaluate maybe and maybe harder to um, objectively quantify, you know, how good of a receiver the guy is or how good uh, he does handling a pitching staff or his calling pitches. Um, and, and so what you'd find is you get a lot of guys, I'd say for a long time, the catching position became heavy on, at least at the amateur levels, heavy on hitting and then heavy on pop time, heavy on throwing. Um, simply because you couldn't evaluate the other stuff. But the really neat kind of revolutions that's taken over the past couple of years is because of the technology at the major league level, you know, the the software and, and, and hardware as well, like TrackMan and Hawkeye, um, that are able to, you know, be the robo-ump, so to speak, um, and, and exactly measure how well a catcher performs compared to other catchers, how many, how many strikes he steals, how many balls, um, or how many strikes he loses for his pitcher. You know, now we can actually put a numerical value on a catcher um, and while people have always said that they want the, the defense first catcher, now I think we're getting back to that because you can actually measure it um, and people can actually have results to go off of as opposed to just, you know, the eye test. Uh, you brought up pop time there, which I think is kind of interesting. I've been able to talk to some really good uh, base running coaches um, about kind of pop time and actually how they really don't look at pop time um when they are um, kind of coaching their guys to steal bases or if it is like a really good base stealer he doesn't really look so much at pop time because there's so many other factors you know the actual pitch itself um you know the time time to plate for the pitcher um what are your thoughts on how important pop time is and how like how much should catchers really be focusing on improving it well there's a couple different ways to look at that and kind of unpack it um It's still important. I think all catching guys will agree that if you had to rank the skills, I think receiving is going to be number one. Um, I think most guys, and again, depending on the level, it changes slightly, but blocking and throwing would probably be number two defensively. Um, It's it's definitely still the easiest thing to measure. You know, if you're a college coach and you're going out watching high school games and you're evaluating your team, or if you're a high school coach and you're trying to decide – you know, which catcher you're going to play, it's easy to put a stopwatch in your hand and measure the pop time and say, I know this guy is better than that guy. It's much harder to say, I think this guy is stealing more strikes than this guy um, simply because high school fields don't have the technology that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, so, so it is still important at the major league level. And I think everything trickles down from the major league level. I understand not everybody is there, um, but the stolen bases are down in today's game. Uh, stolen bases go down for a number of reasons. Uh, base stealers are a lot, a lot choosier, a lot pickier when they're going to steal. They choose to just go in higher percentage situations now. So that's one reason I think you see the stolen bases being down. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not necessarily important at the younger levels. You know, obviously we want to have as well-rounded of a catcher as we can. Um, but, but I don't think it's the most important thing. You, you know, it is the thing that can get you seen and it can get you noticed. 
Um, so it's, it's a little bit different perspective from a coaching lens and from a scouting or evaluating lens. Um, you know, when I'm coaching, I want the guy behind the plate who's going to save me the most runs throughout the course of a game and the course of a season, which is probably statistically going to come from receiving. Um, but when you're recruiting or scouting, a lot of times it's, it's a little bit harder to measure. So you kind of you look at what you can measure. That's the pop time. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next um, follow-up question was going to be, say you're out recruiting and looking for a catcher, how do you or can you really evaluate um, you know, their blocking and, and pitch framing um, things? You know, the pitch framing, you can't put a metric on it at the younger ages, uh, not until the, the technology becomes much more affordable and accessible at, at higher, le- or higher um, frequency across the nation. Um, blocking is a little bit easier to measure. Uh, again, there's not as much as statistical analysis on it, but you just have to have a trained eye, so to speak. You know, if I'm watching a game and the catcher's running to the backstop, you know, twice an inning, bad sign. Uh, if I go watch that catcher three games in a row, he never runs to the backstop, pretty good sign. And again, there's a little bit more that goes into it than that. Um, but, but that's a little bit easier to see, whereas receiving, you know, you're trying to, you know, how close was that pitch? Did the umpire, uh, did his perception have any play in it? How well of a job did he do with his glove? So you kind of just have to go off what you think uh, the catcher does well and with your trained eye and what you project him to be, which part of that's, you know, physicality. Um, sometimes you know, I get this question from parents a lot. You know, do, do coaches or scouts want a player that, you know, does certain things well or doesn't do well? And it's tricky because some coaches, you know, they're going to scout, like I said, a high school kid uh, or a college kid. And some people like guys to be a little bit more raw because they think, okay, great, once we get this guy in our system – we can really teach him our style and our approach, and then we can kind of mold him to what we want him to be, and we think we can make him improve that way. So there's not necessarily one correct answer for that. Um, I think a big part of it is just kind of trying to figure out, you know, where you fit in with which program or organization. Well, you coached at, at Louisville. You know, you've, you've you've been around, you know, have coached for a long time. Um when you were at Louisville coaching, was that kind of the process? Like, hey, we'll bring this guy in. Zan can develop him. You know, so even if he is a little bit raw, um, you know, we have the confidence that he's going to eventually continue to get better. He can hit a little bit. I mean, was that kind of the game plan, or was it let's just bring in someone who's already pretty polished back there so we can, hey, like put him in right away? Well, I, so I coached at two different colleges. Like you said, the first one was Louisville, and the second one was at East Tennessee State. Um, and just being completely honest, it's, it's two different situations. Um, at Louisville, we were, uh, I'd say, more on the national radar. Uh, we're bringing in nationally ranked um, recruiting classes. So a lot of the guys we got, you know, I, I can't just take credit and say, hey, these guys were average or below in high school. They came to Louisville. I worked with them, and now they got drafted. I mean, that's just not how it worked. I mean, we, we were bringing in really talented guys. And then, yes, hopefully you develop them more. Uh, but then when I was at a little bit smaller school like ETSU in Johnson City, um, we, we did, and we were competing against – uh, you know, bigger schools and fighting different recruiting battles and things like that. There, there was a little bit more of, hey, I like I like what this guy does. Let's see if we can bring a guy in who maybe is a little bit more raw. Maybe he's good in some areas, but I feel like I can really work with him and teach him uh, and kind of mold him under what I want him to do. So a little bit different recruiting styles and strategies, uh, just simply because the schools are kind of different. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's definitely a good point. Um, what what led you into not coaching college baseball anymore? Because you know you've had a couple different experiences, like you just said at Louisville, which I mean, geez, that's talk about a, a incredible program as well. Um, like why why not continue with that college path? Um, knowing probably you know eventually as as how good you are, you've you would have gotten a job that you would have wanted probably. 
You know, it's a, it's a, a question I get a lot, and it's kind of a hard one to answer. It's a very individual um, and personal question. I don't mind opening up and sharing. Uh, I loved being a college coach. I mean, being a coach is what I, I always grew up knowing that I wanted to – whenever my playing career was over, whether that was uh, at college or at the end of a 15-year major league career, I wanted to spend the rest of my time on a baseball field coaching. Um, and so when I finished playing, I got into coaching. I loved it. I spent five years at Louisville. Then I spent four years at East Tennessee State as a recruiting coordinator. Um, but along that time, you know, I had started to do this stuff online, which you spoke about earlier. Uh, you know, I, I do camps. I've written books. I've produced DVDs. I've got um, j- just to have a lot of different things going on, and I'm able to reach a lot of people that way. Uh, you know, when you're when you're coaching in a college, you're able to have an immediate impact on the few catchers that are on your staff. Um, the the whole team, but specifically the catchers that you're working with. Um, maybe you see some guys in the summer in some camps, but you really have a very uh, a very small reach. And online, I was able to to just reach a lot more people. I mean, I've I've sold DVDs and books in Japan and Australia and France and Netherlands and Brazil. I mean, it, it's kind of a worldwide thing, and I've kind of gotten a high from that. I really enjoy being able to reach more people in a larger audience uh, that you're not necessarily able to do while you're still a college coach. Now, are you able to reach that, that audience from all over the world just because solely from social media? Social media is the big one. Um, again, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, you, you know, that, that would be the main thing. Uh, I, I do travel around more and do more camps. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm necessarily one of these traveling camp guys that does, you know, 25 camps a year, but uh, I do a few each year. I've, I've been in uh, LA, I've been in Nashville, I've been in Cincinnati, I go to Mississippi some, uh, back to my hometown where I'm from originally. Um, and it just allows me to, to be around more people. And the cool thing that it's, you know, has come from this is when I did get finished coaching on a college team, I always knew that I wanted to get back on the field and coach somehow. Uh, simply when I could do it for the pure enjoyment of it and just for the pleasure of being around coaches and players and, and being on a baseball team. Um, and the opportunity presented itself that first year that I got to join the you know USA Baseball organization. And I've worked with guys anywhere from 14 years old to last year I was with the college team. Um, and, you, you know, you're working with some of the most talented guys in the country. Last year we with the college team, we uh, we played Cuba in the, in the States. Then we flew to Taiwan and to Japan. Um, so, it was an opportunity to, you know, to be with a really cool organization that's important because it means something to you um, and also be around some super talented guys at the same time. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things um, and one of the bullet points I have down I wanted to kind of talk to you about was USA Baseball. Um, how, how did you actually get involved with that? Was that just something that you, they reached out to you and wanted to bring you on board? Because you were the head coach for the at one time for the 14U team, right? Well, I was not the head coach. I've always been an assistant on the USA staffs. Um, and the way amateur baseball works is uh, it, it's only played internationally at certain age groups. So it used to be uh, 12, 14, 16, 18. Now they play internationally at 12, 15, 18. And then I believe the college team is technically 22 and under. Um, but, yeah, after I finished coaching at ETSU and I decided I was going to try to do this type thing full time, uh, a guy by the name of Brooks Webb who was with USA Baseball at the time, now he's baseball operations for Vanderbilt. Uh, just reached out to me and, and wanted to see if there was an interest. And uh, I told him, yeah, definitely an interest, man. I'd love to love to be a part of USA Baseball in any way, shape, or form. And uh, we just started working together that summer. And, and luckily, I've been back ever since. Yeah, I just I can't imagine how you know, 
what an honor, you know, to be able to put on that USA jersey and represent the country. That's just that's really cool. That is an awesome opportunity. So I, I actually had on a, a couple other catching guys before, and and they said they you know they catch with or they I give lessons to players kind of on a regular basis, specifically for catching. Do you do that um, right now? I I do a lot less of that right now. Yeah. Um, right now I'm not doing any any private stuff. Uh, last year, um, I don't necessarily publicize it, but I was a um, I was a consultant with a, with the team with an organization, so I was traveling around flying, doing some of that. Uh, th- th- there's just not. And I, I live in a small town too. About two years ago, uh, I moved to Maysville, Kentucky, which is about an hour south of Cincinnati. Uh, That's where my wife is from oh, originally. Yeah. So I'm in a small town, uh, not not too far from you. It's right down the road, um, but but not doing a whole lot of private lessons right now. I, I try to keep most of that stuff geared towards the camps in the in the fall. Yeah, so you said you've been to Cincinnati before. Um, where, like, where and when have you been uh, doing stuff here? Let's see. Well, I, I travel to Cincinnati uh, fairly often for you know just personal pleasure type stuff. Uh, there's one guy named Josh Elman who runs a facility, um, and I've I've lost the name of his facility off the top of my head. He was one of my speakers at Ketrakon. Uh, two years ago, I believe, did a fantastic job. He runs a facility, works with a ton of pro guys. Uh, I think he's worked with, you know, Aaron Judge and a, a lot of guys on on the strength and conditioning and, and physical therapy type front. Um, there's another facility uh, I had a camp at. Um, it was it was on the northern side of Cincinnati. I've forgotten uh, the exact name, but it had a nice indoor you know field and. Um, like I said, I've forgotten the name of the exact suburb. It wasn't in in downtown Cincinnati, so to speak. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to hear more about uh, your actual catchers conference because I have seen it online before, and I think it's it's pretty unique and cool just because there's literally nothing else like it. I mean, you see other stuff popping up, uh, just hitting or uh, you know pitching and things like that, but just have one solely about catching. What is what is that like? To be honest, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I don't, you know, if I had to be blunt about it, it's it's really cool. And I I always tell the story what it stemmed from is I attended my first baseball conference. Yeah, now it's been probably 15 years ago. Um, and you know, as a young guy who was into catching and wanted to learn more and and just take in as much as I could, uh, I was super disappointed when over the course of an entire weekend they only had two catching speakers. I, I was just kind of like, what's going on here? You know, I feel like it's the most important position on the field. Most people will say that whether they wholeheartedly agree with it or not. It might be another another topic, but you know, many people think it's the most important position on the field besides the pitcher. Um, and there's just no nobody's devoting any time or attention to it. Uh, so whenever I was able to, whenever I got out of college coaching, that was one of the first things I did. I wanted to set up a conference, and every year we bring in um, eight of the top speakers, in my opinion, to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, during a weekend in December, and we just have an entire weekend built around catching. You know, Friday night um, we'll get together. The the presenters will meet with all the attendees. It's it's super small and intimate. It's not one of these deals where we have five thousand people in an auditorium. Um, if you want to talk with uh, Jerry Weinstein or Tom Griffin or or whoever, um, they're going to be there and they're going to you know say hello to you and um, and, and speak with you. And then on Saturday, we'll have a day full of presentations where guys are going to present their ideas on a lot of the new topics or up and coming trends. Uh, then everybody again, kind of has a social Saturday night. Then Sunday morning, we all get together, have a long round table discussion, which is basically an open Q and a where, uh, the, the attendees can ask about the topics that were spoken on before, or maybe if there was a topic they want to learn more about and you get different opinions, you get guys, who are all the way at the major league level. You get guys who are college coaches, and you also get guys who are 
you know, private instructors or, or high school guys even. So you get a wide range of opinions. Um, and just to try to stay up to date with what's going on because uh, it does seem like it's changing. Um, I know the, ba- the game of baseball is changing over the past 10 or 15 years, but it seems like catching is really starting to catch up and, and making exponential changes just over the past four or five. Where, um, well, I guess, where and when um, in Nashville in December? Do you know? Do you have any dates yet of when it's going to be this coming um, year? It, yeah, so it's either the first or second weekend in December. It's held at a school. There's a private school down there called Battleground Academy. Um, they, they have a phenomenal indoor facility. It's basically an indoor football uh, field. And the exact date isn't locked down until later in the summer because they have. Uh, all sorts of scheduling and things they have to go through. So uh, I usually announce the date officially in August, um, but it, it'll either be the first or second weekend in December um, in, in Nashville. One of the things that I uh, I always used to remember growing up, um, just listening to coaches at practice, is how the catcher always needs to be the loudest one on the field. Um, true or false? I say true. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's a little bit more to it, but I, I definitely say true. I, I think one of the, you know, and I call it communication skills are super important to a catcher and, and being loud just because you're loud doesn't mean you're a great communicator. Um, but I do think being verbal and being vocal and being loud is a component of being a good communicator. Uh, so that's definitely one of the things that I try to work with our guys on is to try to lead, try to make decisions quickly. Um, but also try to verbalize their opinions and decisions so that everybody else knows what's going on as well. Now, is there if if someone's struggling with you know being able to work with a pitcher in ter- in terms of the communication and just kind of understanding that type of relationship because that is unique as well. You know, not wanting to show up the pitcher, want to make sure you're on the same page as them. Is that something that you do as well? Like, where, like get catchers to understand in terms of getting on the same page as a pitcher and like how to communicate with them as well. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that starts in the bullpen. Um, and not just in the bullpen before the game, but in the bullpen, if you're a college and your baseball in your seasons in the spring, it starts in the fall, whenever you start working together. Uh, one of the things, and I've said to a few different people, but I honestly believe it. A lot of people will just let their catcher sit down in the bullpen and just be quiet. You know, they just, they're there to catch the pitcher and that's kind of their only responsibility where I think a good catching coach and most of the good ones that I know, they force their catcher. Uh, to be a more active role in the bullpen session. So I, I know the pitcher's there, the pitching coach is there, they're working on particular things, they're trying to fight through it. You know, the catcher's job is not to interrupt, but it's definitely to learn and listen from the pitching coach to figure out um, what cues work for the pitcher, what doesn't work for the pitcher, what motivates him, what, what doesn't motivate him. Um, and then also to give feedback regularly throughout the bullpen. I don't like uh, more than two pitches to go by without the catcher giving some type of feedback. Oh, so wow. I know every day is, isn't a great day for the pitcher. You may not have everything. So it doesn't just have to be rah, rah, way to go, Patrick. Great pitch. Good job. Um, it can be constructive, but you have to learn to say, Hey, that a boy, good spot. And then throw it back or, Hey, not your best right there. Not bad. Try to stay here, get on top of it. You know, whatever the feedback and the, and the communication is, but you have to talk regularly. You're not allowed to just sit back there for a, a 30, 40, 50, 60 pitch bullpen and not say anything. I guess part of that would be making sure that the pitching coach is on the same page as well and letting the catcher do that, right? Because not everyone has, you know, a, a Zan who's just a, a catching you know, stud at, at their school. So I guess part of it, she's going to be the, the pitching coach kind of understanding that as well. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it does take some feel, you know. But if you're a catcher, and let's say one of the pitchers in the bullpen, you know, needs a more intense um, educational session, you know, sometimes it's before the game, and the pitching coach just ends back and says, "Hey, man, go through your team routine, do what you need to do to get ready and feel good." And then there's other days where you're really working on something. Maybe you're learning a new pitch, you're trying to uh, try something new, um, and it's more educational. So the, the more involved the pitching coach is, is obviously better. Uh, but there are definitely certain times where you have to, you know, pick and choose when to speak up, when not to speak up, because you're definitely not there to interrupt and, and uh, you know, get in the middle of anything. But giving feedback is great. And then after the bullpen, I'm always a fan of the catcher going for the pitcher and talking to him for even just a couple of minutes before, you know, the next pitcher throws. Are you a fan of, of catchers during games, um, like in between innings, going and talking to the pitching coach and just letting him know what, like, what he's seeing from that guy, what the, what the umpire zone is like, all that stuff? Yeah, that's one of the things that I've noticed. I feel like all successful staffs have. They have really good communication. And like I said, you know, being loud earlier, that's just one aspect of it. Going up to the pitching coach in between the innings is another great thing to do. It's like, hey, that, that pitch was, you know, really good. Or maybe when you come down after he throws his pregame bullpen, you know, maybe you pat the pitcher on the back and say, hey, great job. Go out there and get him today. We're going to, you know, be awesome, whatever. Then you go up to the pitching coach and be like, ooh, that curveball. <laughs> That's not very good today. we gotta, we got to stick to the slider, you know, or this changeup. Mm, I, I would hold off on that thing as long as you can just to give him an idea of what's going on and what's happening in as much real time as possible. Uh, one of the things that I, I always get questions about, you know, when we have a guest, a guest like yourself come on is drills that they can do. You know, everyone loves drills. Um, are there any specific couple of drills here or there that are your favorites for catchers? Um, just at, I guess, at a wide variety of, of skill level. You know, that, that's tough because th there are so many. Um, I, I do think for the most part, uh, the, I don't want to say the simpler, the better. I don't try to get too fancy and too crazy in my drills. You know, I think the drill, a lot of it is how much can the player get out of it. And when we start adding too many different elements and too many different variables, I think it gets harder to focus on specific things. So my philosophy is a drill should be focused on one very specific um, one specific thing we're trying to work on or trying to improve. So, you know, while we say, hey, we have a receiving drill to catch, so to speak, um, well, maybe it's not just to catch all pitches. Maybe it's one particular pitch we're working on. When we talk about throwing drills, um, I don't think we do, you know, one drill just for throwing. I think we have different ways. Um, you, you know, we should do throwing drills that are trying to improve our footwork, throwing drills that are trying to improve our transfer and exchange, throwing drills that are trying to improve our release point and ball flight or the spin we're trying to get on the ball. You know, so it, it's a tough one because there are so many, and I like to break it down and get as detailed as we can. And um, I definitely start with the simple things and then try to progress more complex as the guys get older and more advanced. Do you think it's it's important for, for players or catchers, I should say, to practice throwing down without standing up? And I say that because I just I just see on TV sometimes with catchers, you know, they don't stand up as um, at all and try and throw a runner out at second base. And then I'll see it sometimes at the lower levels too. But I'm not sure if that's, you know, the right way to go about it at the lower levels. You know, are the, are the major league guys doing it just because they have the arm strength? That's that's part of it. So the guys at the big league level, to be able to throw to second from your knees, um, no doubt it, it takes you know better than average arm strength to be to be good at it. Um, however, I will say this: 
and I've predicted this a couple of times, and I'm, you mark my words, I think over the next couple of years, more guys are going to start throwing from their knees. Like you said, you see it some, um, but it's still fairly rare to where when it happens, it's on Twitter and it's, you know, it's being shown on social media and it's being shown on SportsCenter. Uh, people take notice of it. I wouldn't necessarily say it's commonplace. Um, I think it's going to become much more commonplace where more guys start to throw from their knees more often simply because kind of the, the shift that's going on right now where more guys are starting in a one-knee-down stance. You know, they're starting with their knees actually on the ground to receive pitches um, with runners on base and no runners on base. So I think the next kind of phase of that or the next wave is going to be more guys are going to uh, progress to throwing from their knees. Are you a fan of, of the one-knee-down for uh, high school players? That, and so that's a question I think is not exactly black and white. Okay. I would say yes. I, you know, there, there's no there's no doubt that at, at the major league level, when you look at it statistically, a lot of guys who are doing that are having success doing that. Indisputable. Uh, you can't argue it. Guy, guys are doing it, doing it well. They're stealing strikes. Um, I think it becomes a little bit less important as we go down the ranks, simply because there are more variables. Um, you, you know, the big leagues. I know guys on social media blast the umpires all the time, but those umpires are really good. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they're, they're the best in the world. They're, they're pretty good. Their strike zones are pretty accurate. That doesn't mean they'll never miss a pitch, but for the most part, they're very good. Um, but as we move down, let's say, you know, from major leagues all throughout the minor leagues and college, then we get to high school. Now our pitchers, uh, they, don't, they don't have the same level of precision and command that a major league pitcher does. The catcher... Uh, his receiving skills and just the way he can manipulate the ball probably is not as fine-tuned. Uh, the umpire is going to be more inconsistent. Um, and, and that's not a knock on the umpires in high school. Uh, it's just saying, hey, the baseball players at the major league level are better. The baseball coaches at the major league level are probably better. The umpires are probably better. As we trickle down, there gets to be more inconsistency. Um, so I think it becomes less relevant at the younger ages. But with that said, I don't think guys should um, skip it or not learn it. Uh, I think it's just one of those things that it's 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 not step one or two. You know, if I was working with a guy for the first time, that's probably not going to be the first thing we work on. Uh, we're probably going to work on some other things, look at how the glove works, and try to put him in a position that lets him have success. Because uh, even if we say one knee down, you know, even if we differentiate differentiate between right knee down or left knee down, there's still a lot of different variations in there where a lot of guys uh, do different things, and it may look similar if you just glance at it. But there's a lot of different things going on, and it's very, very individualized for those guys. Um, you know, so it's not as simple as just, hey, I'm going to put my right knee down, and I'm going to get more strikes. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, especially at the, at the younger levels when the pitcher's you know, command is all over the place. I mean, that, that would be almost impo- really tough to block if, if you're one knee down, um, you know, inner half of the plate, and he misses outside. I mean, that's, that's going to be tough sometimes to get over there, depending on, on how hard the pitcher's throwing. Um, I, you know, you're also really big into, you know, nutrition and strength conditioning, which I think is so relevant to that position catching because your body just takes a beating. Um, is there a certain, um, like exercises or nutrition plan or anything else that you recommend or, or you have in your program? Yeah. And that is one of the things that's kind of funny to bring that up. Um, I got interested in that, you know, I, when I was a player, I always liked to lift as a coach. I always knew how important it was to have um, players who were physical and resilient and strong. Um, but n- now that I'm a little bit older, that's kind of something that I've just taken a, a personal interest in. I know that a lot of coaches have hobbies where, you know, they play golf or they hunt or they fish or 
Maybe they build model trains in their basement. I have no idea. My hobby just particularly is uh, it's lifting weights and it's trying to, um, you know, improve my body as much as I can and be as healthy as I can. So I've taken a big interest in the nutrition and the strength training and conditioning side of it. Um, and I've learned a lot. There, there's definitely not one, you know, one diet, I would say. But for the most part, I feel like most diets that have a name, whether it be keto or intermittent fasting or the the so-and-so diet, um, I'm not a big fan of most of those fad diets that have a name. I believe in just uh, eating healthy, eating a well-rounded uh, source of whole foods, um, getting, you know, taking in plenty of carbohydrates and protein for athletes. We all need that. Um, so I wouldn't say I follow one specific diet there. It's, it's more of a set of guidelines. Um, and then strength and conditioning, Again, that could be a whole other podcast. We could talk about that. But but I will say this. The, the one thing that I've been kind of saying for the past couple of years, um, and I think more people are kind of starting to listen and take action on it, is I think catchers need to have better hip mobility and ankle mobility than the other position players on the field. doesn't mean it's not relevant for other players, but just due to the nature of the position and the stance we have to be in, we have to have more mobility through our hips, knees, and ankles. Um, and if you go to a, a traditional baseball practice or you know, a, a regular high school or college game, um, a lot of times you don't see the catchers going through a different stretching routine or a different program than other players. Um, and I think they should. I think they should definitely, uh, you know, everybody can do certain things together. They can do their dynamic stretching, get loose, do whatever. Um, all pitchers usually do their arm care together, depending on who's throwing with the bands or the weighted balls or whatever whatever program's in place. I think catchers should specifically go through a hip and ankle mobility program, which only takes, you know, between five and 10 minutes. So it's not very long. They can do before practice, but that is one area that I think all guys should start to implement. Should catchers uh, be lifting heavier because they, their legs do take, you know, such much more of a beating than, um, you know, a shortstop or second baseman. You know, I, I'm a big fan of everybody lifting heavy, so to speak, and heavy is relative. You know, what's heavy to me might be different than what's heavy to you and is different than what's heavy to Bryce Harper. I saw a video of Bryce Harper front squatting, I think, 405 the other day on Twitter, um, and that's a strong dude, you know. <laughs> I know they're in quarantine and they're not playing right now, but 405 on a front squat, that's that's heavy. That's, that's big weight. Um, so I like guys that lift heavy, so to speak. I do think you have to use your brain and be smart about when you're lifting, um, if you're a guy like, you know, Yadier Molina, who when he's healthy, he's going to catch 130 games a year. Uh, yeah, he probably can't lift as heavy as, you know, the third string guy on a college team who's going to catch, you know, six games this year. So there's a difference. But if guys are able to lift heavy, I think lifting heavy in the offseason is great. Um, I don't think it's bad. I think, I think you actually need to lift heavy during the season just probably the volume of the lifting and the frequency is is down from uh, younger guys who aren't playing. So, again, it's one of those things, it's hard to just set a blanket statement and say they shouldn't lift heavy because they're catching more. Um, I think they should still lift heavy. Uh, I just think you have to be a little bit smarter about how you do it and the timing of it. Are you are- – are you into volume control? And I and I say that because you know I'm sure everyone uh, listening to this pretty much has been watching the uh, the Last Dance documentary of Michael Jordan and you know talking about how he never wanted to take a day off. And so that kind of brought up the topic again in this you know, era of you know wanting not wanting to, to play too much or push through uh, pain or anything like that. And then you brought up Yadier Molina, which kind of triggered that question for me, but. Um, are do you buy that at all, or do you think that's just like, catching a position where you got to have the mentality like I want to catch every single day, no matter what? 
I think that I think it's I think again I think there's two sides to that. I think you want a catcher who wants to catch every single day, just like Michael Jordan wanted to play every single day and he wanted to compete every single day. Um, I think as a coach, you have to be a little bit smarter than that. You have to decide that hey, this is he's caught six days in a row. He needs a day off today, um, just for the longevity of it, and so you get the most of them out, out of the end of the year as you do in the beginning and the middle. Um, absolutely the, the, the right mindset is there. Again, I think it's a lot about the implementation of it, kind of like the lifting weights where, you know, we want a guy who's, uh, I hate to say it, but you don't want a guy who wants to take days off. You, it, nobody, Hey coach, I caught the last two days. I'm, I'm happy to take the third day off. You know, you want a competitor. You want a guy there wants to be on the field, wants to help his team win. Um, and wants to give it everything he's gotten and wants to, you know, win every single day. Um, but at the same time, just the nature of the position, you you have to take some time off, you know. So that's I would put that more on the the coach's responsibility probably than the player. Another another follow up on that would be because you're managing the volume control and everything like that. What would you say about a catcher who also wants to pitch too? Because I can imagine that he, that it's hard enough on his arm behind the plate. Now he wants to get on the mound, which I see all the time, by the way. Um, are catchers, you know, going right into pitch, even like the same game I, I see. What are your thoughts on that? It's tricky. Um, and again, I, I don't want to give a, a generic answer, but it, it is tricky and there's a lot that goes into it. You know, not too long ago when I was growing up, if, if you had a decent arm, you were going to have to pitch at some point. I went to a small high school. I graduated with 48 people. Um, so I caught mostly, but occasionally I needed to get on the mound and pitch just because we didn't have enough people um, to do it. And I didn't suffer any, you know, long-term or short-term injuries because of that. Uh, but now we, we know that a lot of the pitching injuries that are being caused are due to overuse and guys going back out there and pitching when they haven't fully recovered from their previous outing. Um, and that's where it gets tricky. So if I catch a doubleheader on Friday, if let's say we're playing a tournament in Atlanta and I catch a doubleheader on Friday and now you ask me to go pitch on Saturday, uh, man, that's going to be tough. Even though, you know, the catcher, the volume of catcher throwing is much different than the volume of pitcher throwing. Uh, that's one of those things I see pop up on Facebook threads and, and things different number of times. You know, you have to remember that a catcher throws just as many times as the pitcher throws, if not more. Um, and to, to an extent, that is true. You know, if the pitcher throws 120 pitches, you know, the, again, balls are being hit and put in play, but the catcher's got to throw the ball back. But, which you have to remember, is that's a non-competitive throw. You know, lobbing the ball back to the pitcher is not the same as throwing a slider as hard as you can. puts a lot more stress on your body. So the, the, the pitch counts aren't necessarily relevant, where if my legs are tired, my body is exhausted from the day before, even if I didn't necessarily have a lot of high-intensity throwing from being a catcher, my body still probably hasn't fully recovered, and that's when I'm more susceptible to injury. So I wouldn't say guys can't do it, but I do think that as as the amateur game is changing um, and guys are specializing more, it just becomes a little bit more difficult to manage. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. Now, do you think, because of right now, there's no baseball being played, and especially at the younger levels, you know, I get questions all the time about the hitting, you know, what drills should we, can we do for hitting as a catcher right now? Is it, I mean, I'm just trying to think of different things that they could do. And I'm, since obviously I have you on, you're an expert. Is, is there some, some stuff that they could be doing right now with really no baseball? Or is it just something that, hey, like, let's just worry about getting stronger now and we'll worry about the skill work when we can get back to playing? 
Yeah, and again, I feel like every answer you ask me, I feel like I'm giving you a roundabout answer. That's but the I tough do thing wanna, about baseball. I, it's always the you know, it's always it depends. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, and it does depend. And so, what I'm telling people this time of year is the question number one that you have to answer for yourself is what is best for you right now. Some guys, and again, maybe it's because you're a senior in high school and you've lost your season and you haven't signed with the college yet and you still want to play next year. You have to stay ready to play. I mean, you have to be ready to play. So if if the states open up and baseball can be starting played in two weeks from now, you have to be ready because you want to be seen. Um, and then there's other guys, maybe because they've, uh, they're just in a different position. Maybe they're a senior who's already committed. Maybe they're a younger guy. They can make the decision that, okay, I'm going to treat this like it's extended off season. And I am going to try to lift heavy. I'm going to try to, you know, push the, push the envelope with nutrition and try to gain some size and strength and get bigger and, and improve my physicality. Um, so, so that's the first thing I think you need to decide. And, and there's definitely going to be some overlap uh, just because you, you know, you're focusing on becoming bigger and faster and stronger. doesn't mean you can't focus on the baseball skill set. Um, and just because your priority is the skill set and staying ready to play doesn't mean you can't continue to improve your hip mobility and the other type stuff. Um, so, so that's the first thing I said is you, you need to decide, you know, what's your area of emphasis is going to be right now. But for the guys who do want to practice, you know, the skill type, the skill stuff, and I think everybody should do it on some levels, uh, there's a number of things you can do. You know, I, I, I do think that um, catching is a little bit different than hitting. And I know some people may bash T-work. Some people love T-work. I don't know which camp you're in. Um, but, but it's pretty it obvious depends. that you can hit with a simple <laughs> – yeah, it depends. Yeah, it depends. But you can hit in your garage with a tee and a bucket of balls and a net. Um, catching, for the most part, most of the drills, you're going to need a partner. Um, and if you have a, a mom or a dad or a brother or maybe even just a teammate or somebody can come over and you can stay in a small group with, you know, two or three people, um, I, I think there's things you can do. Uh, but for the most part, when you're practicing and receiving, you're going to need somebody to, to throw you balls or to feed balls into a machine if you have one. Um, so I, I think now is the time to, you know, focus on doing the things you can. Um, it's definitely not ideal. It's not perfect. You know, people are having to get their workouts in at home. I've seen people be unbelievably creative going to Lowe's and buying bags of concrete and, and five-gallon buckets and filling up buckets and, and lifting things like that. So it, it's pretty cool, the creativity that you see right now. Um, you just have to be a little bit more creative. That's good stuff. You mentioned uh, nutrition there, and I, and I saw one of your tweets the other day. You talk about a protein intake and how you you need to be just careful of you know taking I believe if I remember this correctly taking too much taking protein shakes and supplements and not being um, aware of how much protein you actually are um, getting in your diet as is and I actually read that out and I was actually getting ready to have a protein shake and I was like do I need this right now and so could you elaborate a little bit on that yeah. So, and again, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but you know, a lot of the, the supplements right now, they're geared towards protein. You get protein shakes, protein bars, um, and they are a lot different now than they used to be when I was growing up. I remember whenever I was probably a, a 10th or 11th grader in high school, I finally talked my mom into letting me get some creatine and a protein shake from GNC. I got home, I was ready to throw down the, the protein shake and like I immediately threw up. Like it was like the worst tasting thing ever. But now you have all these shakes and bars and, and treats and whatever, and they taste like candy. You know, they're, you don't just need to be crushing five protein bars a day and think it's good for you. You know, if each protein bar has 400 calories, which a lot of them do, um, and maybe 20 grams of protein, it's very easy to overconsume and think you're doing something um, that's good for you when you probably need to watch it. Same thing with shakes. 
there's a lot of those ready to drink shakes. You know, if you go to uh, get one and you keep them in your fridge and you're just bored and you want to go grab a protein shake or protein bar, um, you, you may not necessarily need it. And it's probably not going to harm you to take in too many uh, grams of protein, but where you have to watch it more is the is calorically how many calories you're taking in. Gotcha. Glad, glad you cleared that up. I was just curious. Um, Zan, I, I really appreciate you coming on today, man. And I'm going to make sure I put up all your um, all your information on the show notes page. You know, catching101.com um, is, is going to be, you know, one of the links on there, which is where you can find all of Zan and all the awesome like products he has and videos and um and also you can also be able to see you know his picture on there i mean this this guy is jacked like he he speaks the truth and he backs it up with you know the work he puts in uh himself as well which i like to see so um zan appreciate you coming on today man this is great stuff i actually didn't know you were only an hour south of me we gotta link up sometime we gotta do that for sure man patrick again i definitely appreciate you having me on uh, i know we tried to make it happen before but now during the quarantine when we're all stuck at home we finally made it happen so uh, i'll give you a shout for sure next time i'm heading to cincinnati but thanks again for having me on man i appreciate it thanks for listening to another episode of patrick jones baseball make sure to go subscribe on itunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development until next week hope everyone stays safe